Welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm talking with Alexandra Chelios, publisher and founder of the media platform The Big Smoke. Welcome, Alexandra. Thank you for having me. Uh, look, um, it's uh, interesting from my perspective because after 30 years in the advertising and, uh, and media industry, um, I'm used to talking and dealing with the traditional publishers, mm-hmm. the media publishers, but you're quite different to those traditional media publishers, aren't you? Yeah. With, with the big smoke mm-hmm. as a sort of platform, technology platform. So how do you see it yourself as being different from them? Well, when I look at the big smoke as a publishing platform, I see it more as an ecosystem. And, um, and part of that ecosystem is that we publish content. But another element of that is that we aggregate writers and we ag- aggregate content providers and we are bloggers. And it's a lot more than just a site that publishes articles, for example. So I, I guess I just feel that there is a new way of looking at publishing in that regard. And, and so over the last few years since I've launched, it's just taken a really different turn to what I expected it to be because I didn't come from a publishing background and it didn't come from a media background. So that was probably my saving grace, to be honest with you. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to chat to you. you know, you're not, uh, you didn't inherit a publishing, uh, 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 land, um, a publishing format from your father or no. grandfather or, you know, it's not a Fairfax and it's no. not a news, but also you didn't have the sort of traditional approach that. What got you interested in this area? About four years ago, I was sitting with a friend and I thought, I'm so bored with the articles I'm reading in Australia, only in Australia. In, in the US, I was finding some platforms really engaging and interesting, but I wasn't enjoying what I was reading. And I just thought there has to be a different way to have content that was by people who I might consider a little bit more relevant in talking about certain issues. Um, I'll give you a good example. When the Martin Place siege happened, mm-hmm. uh, we didn't want to have journalists writing about what was happening. We didn't want people to say, and at 10.05 this happened, and at night, you know. Yeah. What we actually did do... Reporting. We didn't report, because there was enough of that. Everyone yeah. could find that out. What we did do is we got a taxi driver who was driving around Martin Place, picking up people and taking them away right about it. Mm. And I just think there's a really great opportunity to hear these voices of people who are actually in the fields a lot of the time. And it's more than just academics who are talking about you know, uh, social issues or psychology. It's, it's actually becoming people who are uh, who are barristers and who are who are, who are doctors and lawyers. And I just think there's a really nice opportunity for writers to be viewed in a different way than just journalists. Not to say journalists aren't great, but you know. Well, look, it, it's interesting because you're playing directly to what the the founders, the creators of the internet, mm-hmm. saw the internet to be, which was a democratization of communication. It was going to be a place where all people could be heard. And in a way, what you're doing is really facilitating that, aren't you? I think so. And I think it's just about making it a little bit more easy to navigate. So for example, I don't want to go to 10 different websites to to hear about a particular issue. I would rather be able to see different sides of the coin on, on one platform. And that's why Facebook, as an aggregator of content, has been so valuable and why they're the biggest competitor for publishers. Um, so I, I think it's just really about 
creating an opportunity to feed into what people need to hear, not necessarily the angle that you have. I mean, when the US elections were happening in the US, the big smoke's now in the US. So we've got an editorial team there and, a, a, and writers there. So it's got their own feel, their own feel. But um, there was a real opportunity there to have multiple opinions on what was going on. So we had Trump supporters and Hillary Clinton supporters and Bernie Sanders supporters and people that wanted communism and like yeah. all sorts of, because I want to hear why that why they feel that way and i think just from a political standpoint people um are really quick to only live in their own uh, echo chambers uh, mm. which is what we which know which has come up you know time and time again yeah, since and the election yeah, exactly and they're not open to different views um and i think that that's a really sad thing and i would like to play a part in impacting that space well just what you said then really got me thinking from the perspective of traditional media and traditional publishers love reducing a story into A and B, mm. you know, good guy, bad guy, mm. um, and, and simplify it down to two issues to compare and contrast, to make it black and white. Yeah. But what you were saying about the big smoke approach to the election was let's hear all the voices yeah. because every issue is complex. Well, that's it. And, and you can't simplify a human being, for example, a Trump or a Clinton, just for example, or a Tony Abbott or whoever, as a slogan. Mm. So it's not crooked Hillary. And it's not, you know, Trump's going to be a dictator. I mean, there's a lot more nuance than that. And we've got to, I think we have a responsibility as publishers and in media to, um, to, to play a part in the, in the layers of that rather than going, well, I'm a left-wing publication, so therefore everything's going to be anti this side. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's a real mistake. And I think that one of the things that I get disappointed by, disenchanted by, is going to publishers and knowing already before I click on the article pretty much the feel of it. Well, do you think this is playing to the needs of the audience as well? Yeah. Because I think for years we continue to treat people as idiots or, mm. or to simplify everything to the lowest common denominator. Yeah. Do you think this is actually the success that you're enjoying is due to the fact that you're not dumbing it down? You're actually you know, facilitating... Uh, content and discussions that are beyond black and white? I think that one of the, the pieces of feedback I've received just recently was um, over an issue, the guns issue in Australia, and we had a number of different opinions on that, and they were all from people who had vested interest in what they were talking about, so it wasn't just a, a general rant. Yeah. And there was uh, the, the feedback was that we were the only publication at that time giving the views that weren't necessarily palatable to what everybody wanted to hear. But... I believe we need to hear different angles to make more educated decisions as to why someone believes a certain thing. So I, I, I do understand, though, that a lot of people don't want to do more than read a headline. I get that. Mm. Um, I get that some people don't have the time to really get into issues or care to, and that's fine too. But to have that opportunity to really uh, engage in a particular topic or an issue and, and see different views and maybe be challenged on that, I think that's a really special part of what media should be, and I think that that's what's lost its way. Um, it's not all about just reporting things that could be, quite fr frankly, automated. Mm. And besides the, the whole platform, you know, the traditional magazine newspaper publishing, in many ways you just browse through those yeah. headlines and you read the articles that were interesting. It's just so much more easier on, in the online platform, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and one of the things I really wanted to do was avoid a particularly convoluted platform. So for example, if some platforms, and not everybody likes every layout, so not everyone's gonna respond the same way, but I, I don't enjoy going to a website where there's 
50 other articles glaring in my face while I'm still trying to read this one article. It feels overwhelming to me. Mm. And I think that for me it was about streamlining that process. So we don't have display ads on the site really other than a few banners that are part of a bigger campaign. So so you're not getting pop-ups and you're not getting interrupted. Um, and we have had to, again, going back to feeding the audience, we've had to really go into, well, what is the climate like now? The climate is like the, the, the attention span of the Australian public dropped from 12 seconds to 8 seconds in 2016. Mm. That's the climate I'm operating in. So having a thousand word opinion pieces is going to be difficult to sell. So then it has to be a hybrid of that. It has to be a bit of long form, a bit of short form. Um, some articles are mostly image because people it's easy to consume yeah um, so it, it's really about working out what works rather than as from a journalist standpoint from a media standpoint what it should be so how do you get feedback from your audience beyond the metrics you know you can look at how which articles get read and mm -hmm. things like that you have some fairly interesting and innovative ways of really tracking and understanding what yeah. your audience wants don't you well I'm a big believer in data that tells a story. Mm -hmm. So part of what's valuable to me is more than just the shares of an article, the views of the article, but why someone responded to the article. So one of the ways, one of the many ways we, we track engagement or tra track um, success rate of an article is we have a layer of technology in the content that allows people to respond to why they like the content. Um, it's a little bit more than just the four emojis that you see at the bottom of a BuzzFeed or a Mamma Mia article. It's actually got like over 50 reactions that you can have. And because of that, sometimes we'll see an article that's been shared and we'll go, oh, wow, this has been shared quite a lot. I wonder why. But yet the feedback we're getting is that it was crazy and they were angry about it. It wasn't that they thought it was fantastic and wanted mm. to share it. That's really important feedback to know. I mean, we, we do that with a, lot of our, with a lot of our native or branded content where it's really important for a company to go, well, actually, people shared this because they thought we were innovative. We didn't see ourselves as innovative, but this is how that... That's really important. And, um, and we are constantly trying to find more and more ways to measure that and to capture that information. So how does that uh, inform your decisions from, a, say, an editorial strategy yeah. of what the type of content that you should be uh, aggregating and also the type of content you want to aggregate? aggregate because I've always been interested in editorial strategy mm -hmm. because I think it's a combination of having a sort of uh, strategy or philosophy around what in this case the big smoke represents but also responding to what the audience yeah. is engaged in isn't it I mean I think one of the biggest mistakes I, I had made at the, at the beginning of this is I had decided what the platform was going to talk about. It was going to talk about the arts, it was going to talk about politics, it was going to be about science. They were interesting topics to me. Um, I didn't have a sports section for the first two years of the site. I mean, I live in Australia. And no sports And there was section. no sports How section. I know, and it was un-Australian. And, and while, it, it, while I still don't believe that's the only thing, you, you don't have to do things just because the country's climate wants that, but there was a market for that. Mm. And if the Big Smoke's going to be a platform that caters to all people, we're not a niche audience-focused website. We're not women only or, you know, mums and, and men only. Or We're quite broad. And because of that, we've got to legitimately be broad. So now we've got a sports writer who writes every, it kills me. Every time we publish, a little part of me dies, but it happens and people like it. People mm. read it, people share it. And, um, and so part of the editorial process is to go to what the market wants, the feedback we get from readers and, and our writers. We've got a lot of writers who were once just readers. 
Mm. And um, and so we get to learn a lot from that. And my editor uh, and I often, and he has an editorial process himself, but basically we look at well, what does perform well and we benchmark everything. And we can say that while political analysis does well to a degree, not everybody wants to spend their morning at work reading a political piece. They want to be fed lighter information. Um, so we, we try to have a mix of both. So, so it is, you know, because to me, this is very similar to a marketing strategy. Yeah. In that there is the part of the marketing strategy which is being true to the brand. And mm -hmm. in your case, the big smoke is the brand. Mm -hmm. What does it represent? Um, but also knowing how to adapt and adopt the, the readers, the, the audience's interests within the brand mm -hmm. because you need to get the balance right. Yeah, I mean, when The Big Smoke launched, the whole idea was, aside from my personal views on what content is valuable, the whole idea was that we are going to mirror what the public want to read. So if they want to read content on uh, on, on the cricket, for example, well, we're going to provide that because we are the platform for the people. So people are going to write for us and they're going to engage with us. So to block our particular demographic doesn't make sense. So we just launched a section on the Big Smoke this year called TBS Boomers, which is for over 50s, and it's being headed up by a guy called uh, Mike Walsh, who's, who used to be a great 2UE uh, uh, radio announcer, and, and I used to do his show at Canberra Live, and um, and he's heading it up because he hears all these voices over the years. These are stories that need to be told. and. So we're meeting different markets. We've got TBS Next Gen, which is the kids' program, which is 8 to 18-year-olds who um, who want to write articles. It's so interesting to me that a 15-year-old has just submitted an article on why why people hate Russia. Mm. I mean, when I was 15, I yeah. was not even, like, thinking <laughs> about Russia. Radar, was I didn't even probably know what <laughs> Russia was. Like, I just... Um, so it's amazing. So um, I think that we're facilitating critical thought and we're facilitating opportunity to engage. I've noticed reading across the content, there's a real um, consistency of, I don't know, style, perspective, even though there's lots of different voices. Yeah. There's something about the big smoke that gives you a sense of what it is. Yeah. Now, there is a you've developed a strong brand here mm. from a editorial perspective, and yet it sounds like you're really listening to the audience and just responding to them. Is that what part of it do you think actually is the big smoke? I think the big smokes, I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to be a bit brave in the way we discussed issues so we weren't going to shut out certain things. And But also we were quite irreverent. And that's a very overused word, but we legitimately are irreverent. We we talk about the things in, 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 that are in the news that are important issues in the same manner that you would talk about it with your family. Mm. And, um, and we don't want to do this highly stylized content that is boring. So I think the writers that come in to write for us, it, whether they're professional writers or not, because often they're not professional writers, but they're professionals in, a, in, in their field, and we will often help them write as well. So all of that contributes towards being a part of this bigger vehicle, which is the big smoke. Mm. Yeah, look, because when you uh, when I was introduced to you, you know, it was really interesting to see and read through the stuff that you've been you know, that you do, yeah. and uh, it's a lot more than many of the traditional platforms out there. Yet you're playing in a category that I know well, which is advertisers, yeah. advertising agencies, and media publishers. Yeah. Okay, so. From your perspective, what's working in that 
particular ecosystem, to use your phrase, mm-hmm. yeah, of, of advertisers, agencies and publishers, and what's not working? And maybe we start with what's not working. I think what's not working is this idea that you can have a formula mm-hmm. um, and that your formula will get the engagement from a, from a commercial standpoint. Um, if we're talking about advertising and we're talking about advertorials and all of that, there's a real murky world out there circulating that most uh, b- most marketing agencies don't really understand the difference. Um, most definitely marketing managers within companies are overwhelmed with the differences. And they're all just trying to compete with, well, what's going to get cut through? So I kind of feel like there was an opportunity to, to really go, well, hang on, I don't want to hear about how everyone else is doing this because mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way. So I looked at what has elements of what's worked over history. So I think that one of the biggest mistakes companies are making now is this idea that one article or two articles or a display advertising campaign will bring the ROI of a budget within a month, right? Yeah. There's this idea that... It's quick, a longer term yeah, it's burn a consistency. Than a You're not, people have forgotten about building iconic brands. People have forgotten about the, the time it takes to actually build a brand that becomes recognised and that people trust. Um, I think end of 2016, there was a report that came out that talked about it takes up to 8,000 impressions now for someone to even prompt an action when they've seen an ad. So that's the world we're living in. It's very cluttered. It's very confusing. And unless you are highly strategic and, and, and tailored in what you're doing and then that avenue... I think it's just like throwing spaghetti on the wall and hoping something sticks. And um, so I think that the the metrics people value is often wrong. Um, yeah. I don't want to hear about that. You can get fourteen million views on your on your ad campaign. I want to know if they were the right people. And what was the engagement? What was the conversion? A lot of people don't. But people get really starry eyed over. You know, large numbers. Large numbers, yeah. but large numbers mean nothing if it's not converting, or if it's well, not especially if you're getting like a 001 percent response right. rate. Yeah, you know, you need large numbers to make your investment even look remotely Value, uh, valuable. Yeah. valuable. And I think that's the mistake that they're making. And I think that the publishers often talk about these big numbers and growing numbers. For me, big growing numbers is important because it tells me that people like the content, and we are constantly growing. Um, in 2016, for example. We, um, we were pretty consistently growing throughout the year until December was a higher month in March, for example. And um, and that's a good thing because yeah. often December can go down for a lot of publishers. So I think for me, it's but that's not my selling point. No. My selling point isn't going to be to talk about the numbers of the, the, the readers so much. It's going to be talking about the, the numbers of the engagement, the numbers of the conversions. What is the What are the case studies that we can discuss? Um, so I don't pretend to compete in certain places. I just want to do what works. Look, I think um, you mentioned earlier that so many people seem to buy into formulas, and we find this especially with media agencies. Because of complexity, because of volume, Mm -hmm. because of shortness of time, lack of time, people are inclined to rely on these formulas as a way of shortcutting what's actually required, which is a lot of deep thinking and and exploration. Mm. And I think that's actually what's doing people a disservice is that they're sticking to the old formulas. I think also that, yeah, and look, the other side to that then becomes we talk about wanting to automate systems and streamline strategies and all of that's true. And um, and definitely removing manual labour from certain areas is important. And I don't think that will ever go away, but I think it's about putting your efforts into the right areas. The effort in getting a pitch is often, like, to pitch to a big client and try to get their business takes a lot of deep thought. 
But once you've got that business, the deep thought needs to continue throughout the whole campaign. And I think that's where it goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And so they go, we've got the business now. Okay, then put out the ads. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you see that time and time again is that it's all about the acquisition. Exactly. And I think it should be less about, it should be about acquisition, but it should also be about maintenance. Yeah. Um, so I, I really like the idea that someone can be so stunned by the results of a campaign because they had realistic benchmarks as well. Um, they weren't sold this massive promise that could, they couldn't deliver. Um, so I think that that's really a really crucial part. So you would obviously be engaging with direct clients, as most publishers do, and with agencies. Yeah. What would you say are the differences between the two in the approach or is it the same conversation? I have conversations with both around what, why we're different. First of all, that's a really important thing for me to explain to them because often if they don't know about the big smoke, they're kind of like, well, where do you fit into my strategy? I know what Sydney Morning Herald is, for example, and I know what – and so they, they know all of this. So we, so when I, when I talk to a, a directly with a brand, for example, I'm really big on selling them the audience and the engagement that we get. But with the media agencies, it's about – also selling all of that, but also trying to fit into their overall strategy. So get them to see that we can be part of something bigger for them rather than a separate stream that they feel is too much work. My mistake for many years with the big smoke, and it's still a mistake I make now if I'm not careful, is I can become so involved in the detail and I can be so hyper-focused on why we're different and the technology behind what I think is valuable and the metrics that we get put in a too hard basket. Mm. Somebody doesn't care. They just they just want to know what your click-through rate is and can I deliver this for the client. And so I try to find a way to be valuable but also fit into that because ultimately I do want to serve as many customers as I can. The interesting trend that I'm seeing, especially uh, in the last 12 months, is marketers are saying, advertisers are saying more and more to us that they're wanting to build deeper relations with key publishers yeah. who have connections with their audience as yeah. well. You're sharing an audience. Yeah. Um, do you find that the direct relationships, it's as much about the, the uh, delivery of a, an outcome as it is delivery of an understanding of that audience? Yeah, I think it's both because one of the other things that's really important for me is at the beginning of a campaign, I really want to understand what the person, whether it's a, whether it's a media agency um, or, or a brand, I want to understand what their expectations are in terms of benchmarks because often they don't tell you unless you're specific about outcomes. They don't really want to tell you too much, especially from a media agency standpoint. They kind of just want to know how many people will view the article. Mm. And and I think it's so much more complicated than how many people are going to just view an article. Um, If all you want is eyeballs, we can deliver you eyeballs, but I I want to deliver more than that. Um, So I think the conversations then centre around benchmarks and outcomes. And Recently, we had a client, for example, who talked about one article he had that received 110,000 views and had 1,000 leads delivered to him. Unbelievable. That's what? an amazing conversion. But I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that happened. Right. And I just like to see benchmarks that are, because there was no reporting metric oh, about okay. that. It was just a, he but was told. Anecdotally. Yeah, he was just told, right, okay. he was told by the publisher. Right. And, and so it was kind of this weird sort of. Yeah. Um, conversation that I think people have, and that's an amazing result if that happened. Yeah, but, but I don't think it's industry standard, it. yeah. and I don't think it's industry standard, and I don't mm. think you should be promising that. So if I hear that, I'm not going to say, "Oh, well, I can guarantee you that too," mm. just to get your business. And I think that's where media. Oh, sorry, it was a promise. Yeah, I thought it was actual result. Well, he believed it. Yeah, he believed that. That's <laughs> what. And I just think you've got to be very careful. Right. Okay. Um, around that. 
Well, you know, and we've heard a lot of uh, questioning about a lot of the online metrics, you know, because we've heard, you know, Facebook themselves and now Snapchat, I just read recently, and a couple of others have all come out in the last 12 months and said their metrics, metrics are flawed. Are yeah. You know, this is one, and, and there is no uh, independent body in yeah. the digital space to audit those. And I think that's a problem we're going to have for a while because I don't know if any system is not flawed. Mm. I don't can't imagine. I just don't. Even a lot of auditing systems in their in their their own B survey systems, they can often be flawed anyway. Um, so I, I I just think that it's a really difficult world to navigate in the sense of if you're promising a particular outcome and it has to do with numbers, for example. I think that actions should match up to those numbers. So, for example, I can say to you that you've had, you know, 20,000 20, uh, reads in, in four hours and it got X amount of click-throughs, but if you're not seeing anything from that, if you're not getting a, a lift in your traffic or if you're not getting conversions or if you're not getting inquiries, then I can just keep talking about mm. it, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. So, so I think it's about uh, publishers then having some responsibility for for creating strategies and for creating um, an opportunity for actions to come out of the metrics. Now, you mentioned auditing. I mean, uh, only last month, um, uh, or end of, uh, end of 2016, that um, we read that the publishers, traditional publishers, magazine and newspaper publishers, mm -hmm. have withdrawn their support of uh, accredited circulation auditing. Yeah. So there's no longer in Australia a uh, independent measure of circulation. What do you think about that? I think, and, and I think a lot of digital publishers were doing that as well in the middle of the year. I know Pedestrian TV did that, and a lot of publishers who were who were very proud of their audit their auditor numbers. Um, I think, again, it comes back to it's really, I mean, if you're selling a product based on audited numbers because the numbers are so great, again, that doesn't guarantee an outcome for the advertiser. So I think it's a bit more than that. Um, and I think that for a lot of publishers, one of the struggles that they're having is, uh, you know, m multiple streams of views and, and engagement that is not necessarily on their website. So it gives a really unfair example as to how impactful a campaign can be. But that's because traditionally media has been sold on number of eyeballs. Yeah. You know, and so you've had to have some sort of independent substantiation. Yeah. Are you talking about uh, publishers perhaps moving to performance-based payment? Again, that becomes a murky world as well because I've seen some publishers try to, to move into that performance space. I mean, I think there has to be a bit of both. So, for example, I think there has to be a, rea a realistic expectation that branding and, and eyeballs is a consistent part of any campaign. I can't just be removed and then hope it's only performance-based. It's got to be both. But I do think that there are so many channels that one publisher may use that to only audit one particular channel, it's just not a fair assumption on the overall performance. Mm. So, for example, I know that if on the big smoke we've got an article that's been shared over 500 times, that's gone into so many multiple news feeds that it's had a wider impact than just that views of of what's on the on the article mm -hmm. so that needs to be taken into consideration when you look at the success rate of of a campaign and so i think it's um it, and that's a difficult thing for an external or third party auditor to really focus on because then they're just they're just focusing on one particular metric or one particular yeah. set of numbers it is quite uh two-dimensional isn't exactly. it because it doesn't actually look through the entire loop no and i think it's about um and again this is where i come back to the whole ecosystem con concept because 
you know, we have publishers that work with the Big Smoke. We've got bloggers that work with the Big Smoke. If I have a campaign, which I did, I did uh, recently, where we had an article on the Big Smoke, and then I had three bloggers who each have their own followings. If I was only audited on just my page, mm. that's again a, a minimal view of the overall impact. So it's about collaborating all those numbers and and sort of creating what the reality was. Yeah, that's for much the broader than that. Yeah. Look. Um, you know, you've talked and mentioned uh, content marketing and also the increasing rise in uh, native advertising. Um, how are you seeing people getting that wrong and right? And, and perhaps first uh, we should uh, distinguish between content marketing and native advertising. I mean, we the Big Smoke's business model is native content. Mm-hmm. We don't run programmatic on our website. Um, so that's not how we make money. So it's th- purely through native content. And... For me, native content is about, and for our team, it's about um, content that's native to our site. It's written by our writers. It's written for our audience. And it's done in a way that integrates a brand's message in a smart, clever, and seamlessly, <clears throat> I guess, um, a consumable way. Mm-hmm. Uh, c- content marketing is often a strategy that's used, and it's, it does well in some areas, where the brand's pumping out blogs and talking about their products and talking about maybe interviewing each other in the company and all of that. And there is that consistency and messaging association that's great. But native content is a different beast. Native content is almost, for me, um, the new form of uh, an advertising medium that's kind of like almost as impactful as the amount of effort you put into a display ads assets. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of people spend so much time on getting the visuals for a display ad asset right, but less so on the content. And I think it's, that's the wrong way around. People aren't going to share an ad. They're not going to post on their f- news feed on Facebook, look at this great ad because Mazda has a deal. Yeah. Um, they go, but they, what they will do is they'll share an article that was of value to them. So what we do is we create articles that are of value to the audience and of value to the company. And, um, and I don't separate the two. So I don't think, oh, I, I don't really have, again, this probably comes back to not being from a publishing background because I don't have this idea in my mind that as a publisher, I shouldn't be talking about brands. I think as a publisher, my job is to talk about the things that impact our lives. And politics impacts our our lives just as much as buying a new iron. Mm. So why am I favouring one impact over another? So for me, it's about working with brands in a way that delivers a message. Yeah. And brands, products, all of these services Mm. are all part of our lives. Yeah, exactly. Um, But uh, I guess there's been the traditional um, in publishing separation between church and state. Yeah, I don't care about that. editorial and uh, advertising. No. You don't think that's... uh, So your readers, how do they tell the difference between a, in in some ways, paid for native content and a editorial piece so we clearly state when an article is part of a branding campaign that there are partners at this time so we're partnering with for example Victoria coffee or we're partnering with service manager or whatever brand we're yeah. working with at the time so we clearly say that okay so and it's, it's not it's, it's not as if you're hiding it. no but okay. it's just but what i'm saying is we don't put less effort yeah we're, which the problem i see with a lot of publishers is this a huge discrepancy between the effort of the ad that I'm reading that's an article and the article about 10 reasons why you can find a new husband. 
The other problem I find with uh, you know a, a lot of native advertising in traditional publications is that it doesn't read in the same style the or the same tone as the rest of the editorial. Because, they don't care. Well, but also they're trying to make it selly. They, I know. It's almost like a journalist writing an ad. So we so recently I was reading on another big big publication. I saw an ad that was by Lexus, and I thought, oh, native content. I want to see how these guys do it. It was literally like reading a press release. It was boring. It was a little bit of a call to action, go to their website. But what am I going to do with this? I'm not going to share it. It brought no value to my life other than telling me about the new car. Mm. I would have loved a story. I, I want to have a story around all of that. And then I'm wondering it. how much of that, though, is the advertiser yeah. dictating the tone and manner of the content? Or do you think it's the publishers really just want to get it out the door I think and take the money? My personal feeling, and I've said this before, is... I think that some publishers often feel that it's almost like a necessary evil. Mm. Like, okay, display ads aren't going to pay all my bills. Um, they Paywalls are not going to pay all my bills. So what do I do? I put out a, an advertorial. I mark it clearly as advertorial, and then I send an invoice for 50 grand. It mm. um, doesn't matter whether or not it performed well. It doesn't matter whether or not it was of value to my audience. So I think that's the problem a lot of publishers make. So we, we approach it really differently. I mean... I've been very fortunate to have people in my team who come from very, uh, you know, top-tier advertising backgrounds. We're talking the executives who worked on the Toyota or What a Feeling campaign. We're talking about people who care about building iconic brands. So when we work on a campaign with a client, we're approaching it from that angle and, and with, that, with the same passion as we would talking about Malcolm Turnbull's performance. Mm. Look... Um yeah, you know, I think this, the starting point is the fact that they think of it and even classify it differently anyway, isn't yeah. it? You know, if you think of our role as a publisher is to engage our audience with the content we produce, that should be the starting point. I think so, and I think it's about edutainment, right? Yeah. Educating and entertaining people. I really believe that we can do that in multiple ways. And, um, and, and I think it doesn't have to stop at being branded. I mean, I think at the end of the day... We want, we're commercial entities. The Big Smoke is a commercial entity. We're not a not-for-profit. We're here to serve the community, and the community also makes up businesses. Mm. And, um, and, and I, that's how I see my responsibility. So, and I've never had negative feedback to an ad, an, an ad campaign or any native. I've never had anyone mm. say I felt misled or I was reading this and I didn't realise. No, no one, because we're blatant. We're honest about it, and we just we just provide content that that's valuable and that converts. So you're taking a more holistic approach yeah. and eliminating the pigeonholes. I hate the word holistic because right. I often hear it from SEO companies that say they do holistic SEO, and right. I don't know what that means other than it's three times as much. Hmm. Um, but yeah, it, basically it is. It is, and it's about creating this kind of. Um, Again, go back to ecosystem. Well, maybe maybe holistic approach for the reader. Mm. Like, what are all of the possible content, topics, yeah. things that they could be interested in? And I think there is... We were recently tasked with um, doing a campaign for an uh, insurance broker, which is really hard to make content interesting mm. about insurance because even though we all need it and we all know that we need it, we don't... We, we kind of become very blind to a lot of the messages that are out there. So I didn't want this campaign to be something that bored the, bored the readers and then provided no value to the brand. So what we did is we did a whole campaign on the risky Australian way of living. 
Yeah, we're, nice. we're by the beach. We're, we're in the woods. We're Deadliest you know, animals. rural <laughs> Australia. And we, so we made it all palatable and threaded into that the message of insurance. Mm. And that became highly shared content. That became valuable content. And, um, and, and I just would hope that a brand or an agency would understand the value of that rather than going, oh, but hang on, this advertorial was on this site and it got 50 million eyeballs because the whole website got that amount yeah. of traffic that month yeah. or whatever. And I think it just becomes about educating brands mm. a little bit more. So um, you mentioned earlier about press releases um, and the number of times you read articles online that feel like they were just some, someone's lifted the press release. Yeah. And uh, journalist friends of mine say, well, it's part of the you know 24-hour news cycle and the demand and you, know, you get all these press releases in, basically correct the grammar and off it goes as a piece of content. Mm-hmm. What, what do you see as the relationship between publicists PR people that are yeah. trying to get their clients' stories out there and the publishers and editorial? I, I feel that there is a really murky line between PR and media and I think that in the past it's been about getting free placements for a client that's got a publicist. Um, we use a publicist at the Big Smoke and that's why we do a lot of the radio stuff that, that mm-hmm. I do every week. Um, but but we're not placing stories about how great the Big Smoke is in, in our competitors' publications because that would be really hard. But um, one of the things I have a gripe with, with PR agencies and with brands, is often you think your product is so cool that you should get free press for it or free placements mm-hmm. everywhere. And I think that it's a really misguided view on, on the value of PR. And I think that if you're not able to control the message, um, and publicists often can't control the message, and then if you are just writing a press release and getting that published, is the impact really there? I mean, there is, these are all the questions. So we work with a publicist now who we actually work with them on producing content and putting it on the big smoke, and it's paid for content, even though it's come from the PR agency, and then we amplify that content through programmatic. Mm. And that's a clever way of, of getting more bang for their buck for the client, but also for making the work of PR agencies a little bit more innovative. And, and a lot of PR don't want to move into that space. They think that they're just there for free placements, but they've actually got to look more in, into influences and mm. how can they get involved with media in a, in a, in a way that media aren't going to become uh, almost like an enemy to them because there is going to be a point where media completely go, hang on, you're eating my bread and butter because if they can afford a publicist, they can afford me. Yeah, and also it needs to be a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. I mean, all of the articles I read by journalists at how pissed off they get at publicists just faxing stuff through or faxing, emailing stuff through and then phoning up and going, did you get my email? Yeah. Um, you know, it's because it's not a mutually beneficial relationship and at the, the moment. And the publicist isn't going... Is what I'm sending this particular journalist of value to their segment or to the, what they're doing? They're actually just going, hey, look at this new watch that's just come out. It's got all these features. Can you write a story about it? What, why? Mm. And, um, and I think that that's where the mistake is. And it comes back into what we were talking about before. When you say that we're trying, we're, we're, we're busy, there's a news cycle, we've got to just slap things out there. And I think there's a big error with that because if you're so fast at putting out content that doesn't matter, People are so busy, they're not going to read content that doesn't matter. Mm. Yeah. 
But that is, you know, that's what we hear about, especially, you know, every time Fairfax and News cut more staff, editorial yeah. staff, uh, you always get the uh, the complaint that that just means they'll have less time to produce the same amount of content or yeah. less resources to produce the same amount of content. And I think the smarter question really needs to be, is all the elements of our business model working? Mm. Yeah, good question. So what do you see as the future then? I mean, you know, we've, we've going through this huge transformation. Um, Technology is allowing people to become publishers. You know, in some small way, I see ourselves, we do content marketing. Yeah. But we've taken a publisher approach to it, which mm. is being very much audience focused rather than product focused. Um, so, and that's happening more and more. You know, as you said, you're collating and, and facilitating yeah. a lot of other content producers. What do you see as the the end game here? I think that there is value in every person who has a story to tell or a a brand to have their own publishing platform. It could be on their website. It might just be on their social media. I think there is a way to do that. And over time, you will get a little audience. It might might not be a big audience, but you'll you'll get an audience. And that's why a lot of bloggers are able to charge for content now and for content placements. And that's why what you're doing with your blog is really valuable. And, and And I see an opportunity for I guess for someone like the, the, like me with a big smoke to a- actually aggregate all those voices and, and provide a streamlined approach to accessing them, but um, but I think that brands should do content. I don't think they should do content marketing the way that they do it. Um, I go on websites all the time and it'll say blog, and you'll click on the blog and there'll be like fifty articles and no shares, no mm. read, no one cares. That's if we're talking about saving time. Let's be smart about saving time. If if it's not, if no one's reading your fifty articles, then maybe you need to spend your time doing something else. And I think that a lot of product-based businesses do this, and I think it's a big mistake. They're they're putting resources, they're paying content writers to do all this stuff that's just not working because that they've heard that this is the way of the future. It's content marketing, so they're gonna. And I think that that's where. the future is really around for me personally and all I care about is my future, not really any other publisher's future. But um, but my future is around seeing us as a tech ecosystem that needs to adapt with the, um, the, the changes both in consumption of content, technology advancements around metrics, how do we reach more people, how do we um, understand more people and I think that I'm as responsible for the technology and the metrics of the company as I am the editorial and the um, client relationships. I think it's all one. I don't see myself as I don't see myself as separate to necessarily a tech platform that's focused on algorithm measurement and metrics. I think I'm just as responsible for that. Mm. Look, um, I wish you all the best with thank that you. because I think you're doing a great job already. Thank and you. thank you for making the time to sit down and have a chat today. Hey, thank you for having me. Um, one last question: When you're not reading the big smoke. What are you reading?